But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome to episode 12 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Nicole Kulos-Reed, who is from the University of Calgary up in Canada. Nicole's done a ton of work in all sorts of cancers, but today I'm particularly focused on head and neck cancer. This is probably one of the more important episodes because there's so many unique things with head and neck cancer, not only from uh, the risk of cancer. For example, we talked about how HPV can put you at a heightened risk of, of this cancer. Uh, but there's also some really unique challenges in terms of the treatment and some of the side effects. Cancer-related cachexia, for one, is uh, a really devastating form of weight loss that is quite common in, in several cancers, but even more so in head and neck cancer. A lot of the issues due to the treatment of where it is in the head and neck can cause a lot of issues with eating and weight loss. And then kind of on that note with eating, uh, we talk about just how slow and painful it can be to actually eat a meal as a head and neck cancer patient or survivor and some of the treatments that you know are, are directly targeted at your head and neck cause a lot of issues with, with eating and then getting enough calories in which then can cause weight loss but also getting enough calories to have energy to work out. So some really unique challenges there and in how to go about designing your workout and your exercise program around these challenges. We also have a really interesting chat about the timing of exercise in this cancer population. You know, usually across the board, we say the sooner you exercise during treatment or even before, the better it's going to be for your outcomes. But this population represents some unique challenges due to some of the side effects of treatment I spoke about earlier, and that can affect how tolerable exercise is. So it might be actually better to wait till after treatment. So about 20, 25 minutes into the interview, you hear someone at discussion. And then we kind of finish off with just a chat about the field in general and how we need to get better at translating our research into actionable item, items, along with how our research focus differs from our clinical or practical advice and how we can use our expertise and, and knowledge in the area of exercise oncology to actually bring you more than just the guidelines and more than just a pamphlet that says here work out more and, and how we can meet you where you're at and really take you along this journey to to improve your overall lifestyle and then on that note we kind of finish on this idea of using strategies to uh, facilitate long-term adherence to exercise and not just anyone can come into a training program for 12 weeks and get fit we're more concerned about what you do six months from now and what you do 12 months from now and can we keep you fit as opposed to just getting you fit for this short amount of time and saying good luck. So all of that is packed into this episode. This is actually going to be a two-part series with Nicole because we had such a great chat about everything and anything in the field. So this is part one. Be on the lookout for part two and uh, enjoy the show. I think this is a really important episode because, you know, as we talked about, uh, the majority of information that's out there is surrounding the more common cancers or at least those who are easier to recruit in 
breast, prostate and, and lung in some cases and so much less is known about uh, some of the less common cancers and, and some of the, the ones that are di- more difficult to recruit. So, you know, we'll start by talking about head and neck cancer, but, you know, by definition, head and neck is a variety of cancers. So can you touch on, you know, what is head and neck cancer? Who is defined as a head and neck cancer patient or survivor and, and what does that entail? Sure. So... Um, you're right. It is an underrepresented population. And I think um, as we learn more about the role of physical activity in cancer survivorship, it's become clear that there are more than just your breast, your prostate, your colorectal, your lung populations to really um, start to deal with those groups as well. Um, so head and neck cancer um, is, a, is a number of of different types of cancers in obviously the head and neck region. So it is not um, the brain cancer. Um, It is a a large population. So it's the sixth most common type of cancer representing um, approximately 6% of all newly diagnosed cancer cases. Um, We're seeing in head and neck cancer um, that there are really two subgroups, I guess, and that's related to the, the areas of of the head and neck that are affected. So the HPV um, group, the human papillomavirus group, we're seeing that in the oropharynx cancers. Um, And then the other types of cancers in the other regions um, up through the nose in the oral cavity, um, the tongue, the salivary glands, um, those would be some of the the other ones that have been mostly related to lifestyle behavior, so um, excessive alcohol, smoking, tobacco use. Um, and then obviously the HPV-related cancers are not so much lifestyle-related, lifestyle concentrated in the oropharynx region and, and related to that virus. You, you kind of answered a couple of my questions that were I was going to backtrack on, but it's when I first heard you talk about the, the HPV-related cancers, I was fascinated because... I, I had no idea there was a link there, and, and for those who are listening, understand that HPV is probably one of the co- more common uh, sexually transmitted diseases or, or infections, and uh, the majority of sexually active people do have that, and how how does that come about? How is HPV linked to head and neck cancer, and how is it even more specifically to the oral pharynx region? You know what? I, I don't actually know the answer to that, um, and I don't know that the the researchers actually know exactly how it's related. Um, there is a strong relationship, and, and we're seeing that more and more. Um, head and neck cancer and HPV-positive um, cancer is one of our fastest-growing cancers. So traditionally, everybody has heard of HPV and the link to cervical cancer, and now we have a vaccination for that. Um, so I'm sure the biologists are working um, very hard in this area of research to understand that link and then, you know, hopefully, like cervical cancer, we will see the development maybe of a vaccine eventually. I mean, that would be um, that would be the ideal, I suppose, um, because as you mentioned, it is um, a very common sexually transmitted um, virus, and and right now there is nothing that you know there there isn't a way of understanding if we can target it earlier and decrease the link to the HPV related head and neck cancers right so we do know that the population of patients 
um, present though with those different risk factors and behavioral health factors in terms of, you know, they're not the typical neck with the high smoking and drinking rates. Um, and because of that HPV link, they likely respond or they do, we know, respond to treatments differently. So some of the treatments are more effective. Um, and when we talk about exercise, we also know that they maybe are um, responding differently to exercise as a, as an intervention technique differently than the HPV negative cancer group. With how little we know, it's uh, it's interesting that we kind of found a link, and now we're trying to you know furiously backtrack and and see why that link is there and what causes that. So it's almost a case of, you know. I mean, you should be getting regularly screened for, for various viruses and, and sexually transmitted, transmitted infections. But if it's a case of you, you know you have HPV, you know now that you're at an increased risk of head and neck cancer and maybe more regular screenings can catch it if it, if it is going to come up. Um, you know, what's the typical kind of age does that happen at? Is, there, is it 30s? Is it 40s? How, how, how do these patients present themselves? Yeah, so we know um, that they tend to be HPV positive, head and neck cancer tend to be diagnosed at a younger age and again have those lower rates of smoking and alcohol use. But we don't know a whole lot more than that. And I don't know of any literature, and maybe it's starting to come out, but looking at, you know, if there's any effective screening. The thing with head and neck cancers is that they often do present as a bit more advanced, um, typically because there's not there's not screening, there's not like the pap tests or breast examinations or PSA tests, right? There's nothing like that yet in head and neck. Um, and maybe as the um, basic scientists begin to understand more of this link, we'll see some of that start to develop. I mean, right now, what we do know about HPV, um, beside the type that's presented, is that their five-year survival rates are greater than the HPV-negative cancer patients. And the HPV-positive also um, have increased sensitivity to those traditional treatments, including radiation and chemotherapy. So they respond more better, which results in those enhanced survival rates. It's it's fascinating. So HPV puts you at an increased risk, but you also may respond better to treatment. Yeah, maybe there's other factors going on, like they are younger, right? And they have other more positive lifestyle behaviors. It's probably fairly complex. Um, but yeah, they, they do respond better to treatment. And so survival's, survival's higher, even though they may be presenting as quite advanced. So it'll be really neat, I think, to see in the next, you know, 10, maybe shorter, five, 10 years, how much knowledge is being gained around this area and how that might implicate screening if that can ever happen um, and treatment. And then also, right, as as, um, as we've seen the vaccinations start to take place in school-aged children, um, girls and now boys, you know, it'll be another 20 years before we'll see that impact of diagnoses um, in, you know, people's 40 to 50-year-olds or, 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 or around that age. See, I mean, you'll get some people diagnosed in their 30s, but typically it's still... 40s which is young for cancer right and into the 50s and older yeah so it's almost um when when you're when you're diagnosed with head and neck cancer you you undergo a screening for hpv as well uh yeah so one of the tests that they would do um when they're looking at screening or when they're looking at the diagnostic tests one of those tests is an hpv i guess screen and so then they can classify the actual uh tumor as hpv positive or negative and We've seen uh, 
uh, a shift to even in our study when we recruited, it was, I mean, lucky, but 50-50 HPV positive and negative. And I think we're starting to see that shift where we're seeing increase greater than 50% are HPV positive related cancers and a decrease. Um, and which makes sense if you think of the declining in particular smoking rates that have happened over the years, right? Then it takes population health level years after those those um, policies are put into place to decrease smoking, then you start to see decreased incidence of smoking-related cancers, right? And head and neck being one of them. So, so yeah, then, you know, 15, 20 years, 30 years from now, we'll see the impact of vaccinations potentially on HPV-positive head and neck cancers. And in terms of, in terms of non-HPV-related, uh, non-HPV-related uh, cancers, yeah, uh, you know, we talk about risk factors and modifiable versus non-modifiable. And in terms of lifestyle behaviors, what are some of the more critical modifiable risk factors that, you know, put you at an increased risk for head and neck cancer? Well, the two big ones are the smoking and the alcohol use. Um, relatively less is known about other lifestyle factors, right? So we haven't had, um, to my knowledge, any of the like large cohort studies that would have um, measured things like physical activity level and nutrition and looked at that in relation to head and neck cancer. Now, they, those may be, if we dig into some of those large um, population health studies, there may be some of that data, but it hasn't been a focus specifically in looking at that in relation to head and neck cancer. I would suspect if you look at smoking and alcohol use, typically we see those are elevated. We see less physical activity and poor nutrition behaviors, right? You get that kind of that picture it's almost kind of a vicious circle yeah right so yeah. in terms of the in terms of the treatment for hpv you know we know generally common side effects of chemo and radiation fatigue nausea quality of life physical function so on and so forth is there anything unique to head and neck cancer that uh, patients may experience as a side effect of treatment right well if you think about the location of these tumors, there's a couple really key bodily functions that are significantly impacted by their treatments. So everything from breathing, swallowing, speaking, eating, which is a big one, um, hearing and smell can be affected. And then related to some of those factors, you know, you get significant side effects. And I think the big unique one, and not not only unique to head and neck cancer, but the big issue really is um, weight loss and the associated muscle wasting and the cancer-related cachexia um, that's associated significantly with treatment. And then, of course, and this is similar to so many cancers, is that cancer-related fatigue. So uh, we, we kind of throw about the term cancer-related cachexia a lot, and uh, I still I think there's a lot of people that hear that term and don't quite understand what that is. So what is cancer-related cachexia compared to traditional weight loss or, you know, what you'd, what you'd see kind of regular weight loss, I'd say? So the actual definition of cachexia is um, unintentional weight loss of at least 5% pre-morbid weight occurring over three to six months. So that's the actual definition of it. Um, and so we know in head and neck cancer patients, actually, that cachexia is the main cause of death for 20 to 40% of neck cancer patients. So it's a group that's really uniquely challenged with this issue. Um, it's it's um, another hallmark of this really is that it's that weight loss is associated with muscle loss. So we see approximately um, 70% of the weight loss is in muscle mass and then the other about 30% is in fat. So if you think about that, think of how function is then impacted. If people are losing a significant amount of weight 
um, and that that weight is actual muscle, that's going to impact every element of their functioning activities of daily living, never mind their ability to engage in exercise. Yeah, and it, I, you hit the nail on the head there with the the weight loss. It it's dramatic and it's uh, it happens quite profoundly. And there's also yeah. a mix of of both fat mass and what we say lean body mass or fat free mass is essentially that muscle loss. And it's critical yeah. when a lot of these people may be at a lower level of function to begin with. You take away a lot of that muscle and that affects posture. It affects physical function daily. It affects independence. And then, as you said, if that continues over time, uh, you know, it, it can lead to, to morbidity and mortality. My question related to that then is, is what do you think are some more important interventions to target that then? So, I mean, your two things when you're talking weight loss traditionally um, are nutrition and physical activity. Um, and there has been some research done in um, nutrition for head and neck cancer survivors and really current interventions have been largely focused on nutrition despite the findings which indicate that decreased food intake is probably not directly related to the muscle wasting the lean muscle mass in particular right so the dietary um, interventions alone may increase the fat mass without affecting the muscle tissue at all and and research has has um, consistently shown that so if you go looking at that as the big picture and what we know so far, it really does make sense that physical activity or exercise interventions would absolutely be key in helping individuals to regain the muscle loss that's going to happen. And, and I don't think, um, and even in our study, most of the research has shown that you can completely stop this process from happening. I mean, the, the treatments, the tumor types, whatever biology is going on there is going to go on regardless if we can get them moving a bit more. You may alleviate some of that loss, but then what you need to recover from it is an exercise intervention in combination with, of course, maintaining um, the nutritional intake that they need to have the energy to engage in exercise. That speaks uh, volumes to our training as exercise physiologists in, in how we look at this disease and it's it's dissimilar to how an MD or an oncologist might look at it. And, you know, anyone knows after coming back from Christmas break and you put on five pounds, overeating in terms of calories doesn't always mean that it your your the surplus of calories is going to lead to a gain in, in lean body mass or muscle. And the same thing applies to a clinical population when you're trying to target cachexia or trying to alleviate it, um, giving them extra calories unless you have an appropriate stimulus in terms of training in there, um, there is a chance that that's going to lead to fat mass as opposed to improving muscle, which is only then going to compound the issues. Right. And it's not rocket science, right? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of funny. I love your analogy that, you know, it's, it'd be great if we ate, gained five pounds of muscle mass after Christmas holiday. <laughs> it'd be great if it was only five pounds. Let's not be kidding here. But um, yeah, <laughs> the fact that we, we, traditionally like you know at our cancer center i know here it's the nutritionists who see um this patient population and and before we did the enhanced study you know standard of care was to really increase the fat content of their diets right give them really high fat so you know you're adding whipping cream instead of milk you're you know all of those kind of tricks because they're just measuring weight loss you know, until we came in and showed them the results of the DEXA scans where we could show them body composition differences, 
they, they didn't have that information translated into their clinical practice. They, they just went, well, we've measured their weight every couple of weeks when they've been in and their significant weight loss. So we've got to, you know, start giving them insure, you know, so many of them end up having tubes so that they're getting the nutrition that they need. Um, but yeah, I mean, from an exercise physiologist perspective, we know that if you want to increase muscle mass, you add some resistance training activities. Yeah. And I think, uh, as a sidebar that kind of highlights uh, this issue that you know we struggle a lot as as exercise oncologists or researchers in we are desperately crying out for this to be a standard of care and it may not be you know people will say well physicians and oncologists need to be speaking about this a lot more but they're not the ones who are trained in this area and trained to think like we are so maybe it's less about physicians and oncologists need to be sitting down for half an hour or an hour with their patients and more can they have a team of 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 medicine staff or, or whatever it is that they can send down the hall and say go into Nicole and talk about how physical activity can help or complement your treatment go into an RD and have that team work together as opposed to you know it, it's just a different level of training that they have that we we don't think the same way so as opposed to make us making a call that physicians should be doing it, maybe it's more this kind of team environment that will facilitate that complement, complementary efforts, I suppose. Absolutely. Now you're speaking my language exactly. I mean, our, our goal here in our province with our program is exercise as part of standard care. And to facilitate that, it's not about us continually educating the healthcare professionals, the doctors and nurses in there, although that's important. It's about embedding a kinesiologist or a certified exercise physiologist into the system as the source of expertise, as the person they can directly refer to, as the person who has the time and the expertise and it's within their scope of practice to screen, to prescribe, and to triage people into the right programs for them. I mean, that absolutely has to become what we deliver. Nutritionists are already part of standard cancer care. I would argue we have more consistent education and information and evidence on the role of exercise now in oncology than we have for nutrition in oncology. And yet we haven't translated that into clinical practice. So um, yeah, it's up to, I think, the researchers and the exercise physiologists and the fitness professionals to really start advocating and being innovators and, and disrupt the system and change it because it will it is something that's absolutely necessary. It's not a, it's not a, oh, that would be nice. It's a necessity for us to enhance the quality of life and to help survivors move from wellness or from illness to wellness. Yeah. And it, uh, <laughs> we'll kind of, we'll go back down that rabbit hole. Cause I think you and I could talk all day about yeah. <laughs> frustrations <laughs> with, with uh, exercise and college as a standard of care. So we'll finish off on that, but let's backtrack a little bit. And one of the more fascinating parts of your talk at ACSM I found was when you were talking about trying to implement physical activity in in head and neck cancers uh you spoke about the time issue there and i was kind of going you know they they have all day and you were talking about how long it takes them to consume calories and and have their meals can be you know hours and that then leaves a lot less time to dedicate to physical activity uh, can you touch on that a little bit more and and talk about how how those challenges present themselves and what do they do to kind of combat them yeah, so within the context of our study, we had we had two groups. We had one group where we were giving them the exercise intervention during treatment. So to kind of recap, the treatment for head and neck cancer is um, short and terrible. So it's, it's a very intense protocol delivered over a, a short time period, six weeks. And, 
during that time period, they become very sick. And we, you know, thought we could give them exercise during that time to alleviate the usual decline and help them recover. The other group received exercise after treatment completion. So their, their body's naturally starting to recover. They don't feel good by any stretch of the imagination, but they, you know, their body's starting to try to get itself back onto, into line and, and start to recover. Now, one of the, the things that came up, the differences between these two groups was adherence. So it was, it was very hard for the group receiving exercise during treatment to adhere, to come on a weekly basis to the sessions twice per week, right? So very, very hard. And when we spoke with these individuals after the study, and even during anecdotally, but we did a qualitative piece after, you know, one of the barriers is that, you know, they're, they're really sick. They have very little energy. They're wiped out completely with the cancer-related fatigue. They have the issue of the significant lean muscle mass loss. So functionally, it's harder to move. And one of their big focuses because of the weight loss is to eat. And because of the location of the tumor, eating's hard. And it's not a pleasant activity for many of them anymore. Um, and so because it may take them so much more time to eat, that really becomes a significant barrier, not an excuse, but an actual barrier to being able to then get to an exercise program because they know we've told them they have to have some nutrition in them for energy so that they're okay when they work out. Um, and so they're caught between that rock and a hard place of, okay, I need to eat and I, I want to eat and I've got to because my nurse is saying, Hey, you've got to keep your weight up or else you're going to have a tube. And the exercise people are saying, you've got to eat before you come in. So you've got energy. And so what, you know, for us might be a 20 minute breakfast can take them an hour and a half, two hours. Right. So, that, that amount of energy they have to put into eating in the sheer time then does actually take away from when they would be maybe being able to move a little bit. So it, it's one of the barriers that we never would have probably thought of, um, but something that came up was a significant barrier for a number of our individuals when they were receiving exercise during treatment. We we all know that feeling of, of working out on an empty stomach or, you know, maybe you haven't got to, to breakfast and you try and go for a run later in the afternoon and it does, it, it feels miserable, you don't really have a lot of energy, the the workout just doesn't go well and I, I, I can't imagine the frustration that some of these people may feel that even if they want to go to a workout, taking so long to consume four or five hundred calories you know, an hour and a half or two hours a meal, and it's it's not it's not an enjoyable meal where you're sitting down having a chat and a coffee, and that's taking you so long. It's it's literally that painful, or it's that you know, it's that slow, and it it must be really frustration frustrating, and it speaks volumes to when we talk about when's the best time to exercise. Of course, we as as professionals would say the sooner the better, and the more you do, the better. But maybe that's not the case in certain populations, and this seems like it's it's one of them that. There may be certain people that that might be better suited to maybe wait until some of the more pronounced side effects of treatment are subsided a little bit, so then they they have that time to to get through their food and, and work out. Absolutely. I mean, if we when we looked across our studies and our findings, um, one of the key findings is that after 24 weeks, both groups improve. So. You know, there is no difference between our groups, whether we intervene later or earlier by about 24 weeks. The second group, the group that were able to deliver the exercise intervention after completion of their treatment, 
they had a much easier time actually adhering and actually um, probably found it a bit um, more favorable in terms of the intervention because there weren't as many barriers. Now, that being said, they also told us if you hadn't contacted us at the start of all this and recruited us essentially for the study before our treatment, no way we would have come in after because they feel really bad still at the end of treatment. Like they've been through it all. They know how gross they're going to feel. And if we had approached them at that point in time, they would have said exercise, no way, like give us another six months to recover. And yet we know if we do that, if we keep waiting, they, they don't recover as well right? It, they just kind of get stuck in that vicious cycle of they've lost a lot of muscle mass, they have nothing that's focused on bringing that back for them. And so it just takes the body a lot longer to naturally start to heal if it's going to at all. Right? So I think the key here is maybe in this patient population, it's educate them a lot early on, provide resources and support for those who can manage to, to move or and train them about what that can look like. It doesn't have to be going to the gym. What can they do from home, right? And what can they build into their regular routine to just maintain some functional ability and some independence, right? And that quality of life that might go along with that. And then after treatment, start to build in a more structured, tailored exercise prescription for them at that point in time. Anyone, for the most part, can come in and join our fitness program for 12, 24 weeks a year and get fit. But I'm less concerned about the results you see immediately after that program i'm more concerned about are you still active two years down the line are you still active three years down the line the the 12 week improvement is in fitness is largely irrelevant if you go back to your sedentary lifestyle after and as you're talking there kind of it's making me think of this idea of behavior change and maybe there's certain parts of this patient population that be more suited to the first you know, intense part of treatment is subjected to more behavior change counseling, motivational interviewing, talking about barrier problem solving, things like that, that will then facilitate their adherence and participation in exercise down the line. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think they're one of the big issues in all of this is how we talk about this with them. So, you know, picture yourself as being a 40 year old diagnosed with HPV related cancer, you're going to go through six weeks of horrible treatment and somebody's telling you to exercise and you're like, Oh my God, I can barely move. Like, are you kidding me? And maybe they're younger and they have been active, but they, they just can't fathom that. So I think at a clinical level, we need to start talking more about moving and then give them some movement ideas and education and, and, and break it down for them to being helping people realize like just moving can be helpful and then building up to physical activity and not even going into the exercise as medicine and an actual exercise prescription until we've built in them some confidence, right? Self-efficacy is something that we don't often target in these exercise interventions unless you bring in that behavioral perspective and self-regulatory perspective. And yet it's probably the most important piece to build, to give them that confidence that they can engage in things and then they, they can, you know, deal with the barriers that are going to come up. They're going to have this, the resources to deal with that more effectively, you know, and, and building that in them before they even get started by having them just move a little bit is, I think, one of the pieces that we're often missing when we translate all of this awesome evidence into actual practice. Yeah, I fully agree. And it's it's funny you, you spoke about the idea of just moving because as as a researcher, I am really focused on resistance training and strength training and how to how to kind of strategically manipulate 
resistance training and program it to, to optimize various outcomes. But as a clinician and in the industry, when I work on people, you know, that, that research emphasis takes a complete aside to what I actually uh, provide as advice for the general population or for cancer patients, survivors and that. Yeah, so as a researcher, I'm focused on resistance training. But in general, in terms of getting people moving, any movement is better than none. You know, and maybe there will be a point where you're able to participate, as you said, in a structured, you know, periodized training program. But maybe what you need right now is just to move. So we need to find that balance of, of what we really see as kind of optimal and what we see as how much can they do? What do they enjoy? What's just going to get them moving? And finding that balance is an interesting one as, as a researcher and a clinician. As, a, as researchers, we always want to be building evidence and considering, you know, what is the actual dose? What are our prescriptions? What are our, you know, working off the fit principle? What what can we, how do we need to change those general exercise recommendations of that 150 minutes a week plus two days, right? There's, there's much more specificity that we can start to deliver around that by conducting good research. But there's also the point of taking what we actually know and start translating it to the real world. And in the world you're never starting somebody at 150 minutes a week whether they have cancer or not yeah, right exactly Terry you're you're bringing it back to the basics and moving and and I think there's a point where as researchers we have to say okay well I'm going to conduct research on this translational piece like what does it look like in the real world we can't control all the elements anymore and that's okay because that's what's going to give us those results one year or two years out it's not you know, yeah, it's great that we have 85%, 90% adherence in a two-week or a six-week or a 12-week program. But as you said, who cares, right? We want to get people changing their beliefs in themselves and seeing themselves as exercisers. And I don't know of anybody that's really done a great job at that so far. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And I think we're seeing it from the same hymn sheet in that even, you know, you spoke about how much we know about exercise and we do have these guidelines, but for the most part standard of care in terms of exercise is someone gets handed a leaflet or a pamphlet that says hey 150 minutes per week it's good and they look at that and go what am i meant to do with that and as you said their cancer patients survivors present themselves in a variety of ways you know some are really fit some are completely sedentary and so some may be doing more than 150 minutes some may look at that 150 minutes and say how do you ever expect me to get there and that's where I think by us staying in the industry or staying in, in, in the clinical side of things as researchers keeps that real world perspective in that it's it's too hard to apply these rigid guidelines. There's got to be flexibility there. And, and as evidence-based medicine, that's using our experience and, and knowledge to be able to take that nuanced approach and knowing how to apply them, when to apply, when to apply it and how to manipulate them. You know, the Exercises Medicine Initiative is an awesome one. And um, in Canada, Dr. Jonathan Fowles is our national chair for Exercises Medicine Canada. And I actually had the pleasure of bringing him here to um, our university last week. And one of the big pieces he talked about was kind of the bait and switch, right? So the medical world, the healthcare professionals, they want to know about exercises medicine. Where's the evidence? Where's the research? You know, what, what is, do we know about actual prescription and dose? But then they also need to be taught that when they're translating that into clinical practice, you're not going to hand out that 150 minutes guideline to somebody who's just been diagnosed with cancer. You're just going to ask them, what are you doing to move in your daily lives? And you're not working up into that exercise prescription until 
they've started some basic movements, right? Which is just good clinical practice. And so I think that that translation piece, I mean, we have to talk in the world and in the words that the healthcare providers and professionals are using and they want evidence-based and it's all evidence-based, but it's about translating then the evidence into what works in the real world. And that means, yeah, the guidelines are good and that we have them for a reason, but dialing it back and talking about, okay, what do we need? What are the steps to actually get somebody there eventually? And that eventually might be one or two years later or never. Maybe they're only going to ever get up to 90 minutes a week. And that's awesome because we know from the cancer literature that at 90 minutes, people get a lot of benefits. Heck, people get emotional health benefits and well-being benefits from a 10-minute little break. Exactly, exactly. I love that. And you're, you're kind of talking there about uh, our ability to, to understand where they're at. And again, it screams for the need to uh, have educated professionals in this area who are trained in exercise physiology and, you know, cancer biology or, or the treatments and, and the related side effects in that from speaking to you and, and so many other people I've interviewed and, and all over the course of my career, it's consistently come up that our approach to cancer patients, while there are some nuances to it, is not necessarily unique in terms of our initial screening process, we do a medical history, we do an activity screen, and we do some maybe some motivational interviewing to 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 get a whole picture of where they're at as a person. And it's not it's not on us to say, here's our level. You need to come up to us. It's on us to find a way to meet them as close to the middle as possible, or even go ninety percent to them and bring them along. You know, people are going to have different uh, different relationships there. But I think you're really highlighting the need for it. It takes someone trained in this area, and that's not, again, it goes back to our original point. It's not MDs that are going to be that person. It's going to be someone with this extensive experience from, from maybe an exercise oncology background. Absolutely, and I think then that speaks to two things, right? We have this general prescription with anybody. And I don't care if you're working with cardiac rehab, with somebody with diabetes, somebody um, with obesity you are tailoring and individualizing it to that individual. And that's part of the cancer and exercise guidelines, right? We have our, our guidelines that are the same as they are for the general healthy population. But within the cancer and exercise guidelines, it states that it has to be individualized and tailored. And I think we often forget about that when we just throw those brochures, right, out into the waiting rooms or doctors or nurses are handing those out for us that have our just guidelines, they don't key in on the, hey, but it's we're going to meet you where you're at right now and help you work your way somewhere along this spectrum of, of engaging in wellness as part of your regular activities. So that, that individualizing and tailoring so is a piece that the exercise professionals are trained to do. That's what they do. That's why they screen and get all that information is to individualize and tailor things. So that's one part of it. And I think then the second part is what you mentioned about them having some back in cancer, right? Like we, we want to ensure that this is a safe process for the cancer survivor so that if they are referred to an exercise professional, that professional, they're not going to be an oncology expert in 99.9% .9 of the cases. And so they need some basic training on, you know, what is cancer? What's the biology? What are these common treatments? And then if they're working specifically in breast or prostate or head and neck, they receive more in-depth training on that specific type of cancer so that they can work with them effectively. And by by engaging the exercise professional and providing them with some more training, we ensure that the process is safe for the survivor, but that it's also going to then be more impactful because they're going to know in general for somebody with head and neck cancer, okay, 
I'm not going to build an aerobic program for them right off the bat. We're going to start with resistance training to build that muscle mass and, and maybe not burn as many calories as if they were doing an aerobic based training, which is, if you look just at the general guidelines, you'd be going for building up their aerobic minutes every day, right? So that's why we want that training because then when we have more effective programs, they have impact and that impact is what will build adherence for the individual. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to piggyback a couple of points off that. And the first one was actually a question I was going to ask you. When I was sitting in your talk, uh, my good buddy Keith Drain Borowski, who is up at Loris College, uh, great guy, kind of leaned over and said, as you were speaking, it, it speaks to the need because head and neck cancers aren't really consuming a lot of calories. It's difficult for them to eat. Maybe we need to look at um, strategies to increase activity without consume or without expending a lot of calories so you know resistance training is one of those we know that you know you go for a 30 minute run it's going to burn quite a few more calories than lifting weights for 30 minutes so uh, what are some kind of uh, you know off the top of your head what do you think would be more more effective in that area of increasing activity but kind of saving calories at the same time absolutely and that's why our program in the enhanced study was a resistance based resistance training based program. So it was, it was geared around really functional movements, um, you know, own body resistance, adding in, um, bands and balls for core balance work, plus resistance training using bands and then building them up until if they felt comfortable, there were some free weights and that sort of thing. Um, there's been some work done, um, by some colleagues looking at, you know, more, um, machine based. So you can actually you know, more objectively measure the load of the resistance training and from an exercise physiologist and fit prescription that could be useful to gain some more of that information. Um, but it really wasn't about building in any sort of aerobic um, conditioning into that program until weight stabilizes and they're starting to add in some lean muscle mass. So, you know, in our study, we were able to have DEXA scans so that we can we could look at differences in body composition, um, but just going, you know, on on stabilizing of weight and then starting to see some weight gain before you adding in any aerobic, which is going to burn more calories, is is definitely one of the ways you'd want to tailor for head and neck cancer survivors. That would be different than, for example, what you might be doing with breast or prostate. Did you have any uh, common modifications to any of your exercises that kind of consistently came up that you would say maybe this is something that people working with head and neck cancers might want to consider? Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I wasn't the exercise professional in the room with them, but I know from our study, a um, lot of uh, balance work was important, which makes sense. If you think that they've lost lean muscle mass, um, the structural integrity right, of their system is, is diminished. And so engaging in some, um, some balancing activities and some core building, strength building activities before you would move out from the core. So a lot of our movements were kind of whole body functional movements and really adapted things for individuals depending on where they were in terms of balance. You know, we'd have some people starting in chairs before they'd move to like a stability ball for some exercises or, you know, not going down onto the floor until they had the strength to get up off the floor. And a lot of that's building their self-efficacy as well with that, right? So we're not going to get them down onto the floor week one if they have then a super hard time getting up and that drains their energy for doing the rest of the class and they feel like they're not competent. So, you know, keeping them upright, modifying exercises based on their pose, their their ability to go up and down was probably one of our big things. Yeah, that's I like that. So there's a focus on balance there. And I really like the point that you kind of keep returning to 
self-efficacy and uh, the more I get my feet wet in the behavioral side of things and, and uh, working on the doctor folk here at Ohio State has taught me a great deal about this and it, it's critical for the long-term adherence to, to exercise, the idea of self-efficacy and improving motivation and all that type of stuff, particularly when you're going through treatment and even coming out of treatment into survivorship, the fluctuations in daily, weekly, monthly fatigue, um, throw in life on top of that and you'll have some days or weeks where you have more exercise and then you have some days or weeks where you have you won't get to the gym as much or you won't be able to exercise as much and being kind to yourselves on those lower weeks and having that self-efficacy as a baseline and knowing that you know I can do this instead of having a lower week or two and then cutting yourself off and saying it's not for me I think it, it speaks volumes to the idea of, of self-efficacy as a way of of keeping that kind of longer term goal there. Absolutely. The other thing that we do, and this has been part of our program model across our different tumor groups that we work with, and it's in all of our current work, um, is that we give people three programs and we call it our, our stoplight, our red light, yellow light, green light programs. And so when they have their baseline tests with us, we give them their ideal program. That's their green light, right? So when they're feeling their best, Here's the ultimate prescription from an exercise physiologist perspective, what they should and could be doing. And then we give them two modified programs. So the yellow lights on their so-so day, they don't have a ton of energy, but they want to still do something. So it would be less reps, less exercises, dialing it back essentially. And then their red light program that they get is the easiest program. It's when they're having a tough day, but we want them to do something. And and the reason we've devised this strategy is to get rid of that all or none that can happen with exercise. So they're given a prescription, they have a crappy day, they can't do it, and they look at it and go, oh, well, I guess I do nothing. Because they're not exercise professionals. They don't necessarily know how to modify it. Even if it's something as simple as just cutting down the number of exercises, they may go, oh, well, do I just start with the first one? Do I do the last one? Like, what, what do I do here? So we've taken all the guesswork out of it, give them their three programs. And again, I'm going to come back to it, but it's about their self-efficacy. It's showing them that they can do something even on their most fatigued days. And as they become more competent exercisers, then they can start to look at it and go, okay, I know I can't do it all today. I'm going to pick my two favorite exercises and I'll do those for 10 minutes instead of my 30 minutes. And, you know, that has been a big piece of what we've developed across our our tumor group populations that we work with. And it's, I think, one of the key factors in helping them to build their sense of confidence and their awareness of what their body is able to handle on any given day. I, I just I love that perspective in providing people with options because you touched on it yourself. You know, maybe they're not educated in, in how to design their own programs, but inherently by providing them that options, you're giving them the ability to educate themselves. And too often you see as part of these trials, again, people will come in for 8, 16, 24 weeks, whatever it is, and we pick their weights and we pick their reps and we pick their sets. And at the end of the study, we say, good luck. And they're kind of standing there going, you know, you did everything for me. Now what? I don't know how to do it myself. And as, as you provide those with those options, they do start to learn that pattern of it's not I have to do all of the workout or I don't do it at all they learn how to listen to their body they learn how to listen to internal and external cues and being able to find a stimulus or find a program that suits them for that day so i really love that model um we do too i think it works and it, <laughs> it comes down to then engaging them and teaching them how to be an exerciser right we're not teaching them how to do a squat we're teaching them how to be an exerciser and how to build this into their daily routine and so maybe their squat ends up being at their desk at work when they return to work 
or maybe it be, is a, they're retired and they do 10 squats in the morning at their kitchen counter. We're giving them the skills to integrate it into their lifestyle, whatever that may look like for them. So there you go. Just a great chat with Nicole, who is equally, if not more passionate than I am about translating our research into tangible, actionable items. And uh, I think it really just ended up being a, a great chat about all areas of exercise oncology, but some also really good tips for head and neck cancer survivors as well. Importantly, if you're in the Calgary area, if you're up in Canada and you're looking to get involved in studies, the University of Calgary and, and Nicole's lab does a ton of work in cancer survivorship and even for patients themselves. So I'll put the I'll put the website in the show notes, but go to University of Calgary, their health and wellness lab. They have a ton of resources there. They have some information on some of their current and upcoming studies that you can kind of get involved in if you if you fancy it. Nicole also founded what's called Thrive Health Services. Now I'm butchering that because I cannot pronounce my THs, so it's Thrive or Thrive Health Services. Uh, it's a service aimed at patients, survivors, health professionals, all again focused on the translation of our research into certifications for professionals to talks and seminars to wellness groups and corporations and all that type of stuff about how to reduce your risk of cancer, improve overall wellness. So Thrive Health Services, again, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And of course, you can follow Nicole on Twitter at Read. Again, I'll put that in the show notes so you can find that as well. And you can also find me on Twitter at Kieran Fairman, which again, I'll put in the show notes because no one has any idea how to spell that. So thanks a lot for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you next time.